Let's open God's Word. Let's take a look. In the New Testament, uh, one of the letters uh, by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the final paragraph. Um, Somehow, I don't know how it happened, we ran out of time last week. And so we're going to finish chapter 4 today, Lord willing, uh, these final verses. And, And I would love to read the whole chapter to remind you the flow of all that he's been saying uh, about having a ministry and not losing heart and his hope in the resurrection and the way he handles uh, uh, being light in the darkness and being a jar of clay. All of those things about his ministry that bring him to this grand conclusion. But in this conclusion, we will see Paul holding forth his heart of faith. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, Paul writes, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal thus far we read in God's good and holy word may he bless all who hear believe and obey it Amen. Amen. One of uh, my heroes in the faith uh, uh, died before I ever really knew about him, um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welshman who was famous for being a preacher in London for 30 years at Westminster Chapel. He was born uh, right at the end of 1899, the month of December. He just squeaked into the 1800s. And he lived until 1981, died that spring. He's written volumes and volumes, well, he's preached many sermons, and those have been edited and put out, and they make some of the best reading you will find between two covers of a book. A series on Romans, a series on Ephesians, many helpful sermons from one of the greatest preachers in the English language, and some say one of the great preachers of all church history. I bring him up because he particularly liked this text. It was in spring, early spring 1981, as he was in his final days. Derek Prime writes and reports that the good doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, lost his ability to speak. One of his daughters, Elizabeth, sat beside him. And with the Bible open, he pointed to these words, our text this morning. He put his finger there. And when asked, is that your experience? Is that your testimony? He nodded his head so vigorously, even at 81 years old. He was unable to speak, no less preach. But this was his testimony. He did not lose heart. 
He knew his outer self was wasting away, but his inner self, even on those days, was being renewed and prepared for heaven. When Paul wrote, he was describing that that was his testimony. He wrote to those difficult, contentious Corinthians, that church that had just about every problem a church can have, as well as many gifts and delights. He writes, I don't lose heart. My faith holds fast. Previous paragraph, he said, we have the same spirit of faith. And he quotes the psalmist. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up. He had a belief in the resurrection. Paul did not lose heart. And here in this paragraph, he supports that assertion. I'm not going to lose heart. Even though these things happen or you can see that. Or you're wondering about this. And he gives those contrasting situations. He explains how his faith, the heart of his faith, reacts and holds fast. It's a wonderful picture. And God's word is like a mirror. It's held up to you this day. How does your faith not lose heart? How do you hold fast to the truths of God? It's my hope and prayer that God's word today would help us have a biblical faith. Not some cultural pie-in-the-sky faith. I hope you remember from last week the definition. Hear me now. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It's a stepping into the light of all that God has made known. And we put confidence in his self-revelation. We put confidence in his word. And we put confidence in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who walked this earth and made him known. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It's real. It's based on knowledge. It gives assent. And it trusts what God has revealed. So let's take up our first heading as we look at this paragraph. And it's, it's going to break down to one heading per verse. 15, 16, excuse me, 16, 17, and 18. First we see that faith understands daily spiritual growth. Faith understands how growth happens. Isn't it delightful to watch a, a toddler grow up? And learn things, the difference between hot and cold, yes and no. And you see, wow, they really are learning. They, they know, and then, then they begin to make associations that maybe you did not intentionally teach them. How, how do we grow spiritually? The Bible has a portrayal of that. And it's not always easy. Sometimes it's frustrating even as the toddler doesn't fully comprehend. Why, why are you saying no? Why can't I just eat cookies? The spiritual child of God sees that the discouragements are real. And the Bible reminds us that these are but the context for our growth. Verse 15. So we do not lose heart. Though, and he's describing the way things are in the world. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. There's the growth. Something is still growing despite the, the afflictions and the difficulties and the rainy days and the days of grief, even days of terror. The Bible 
Praise God. The Bible does not candy coat anything. You're not sure what a friend in trouble needs? They need the Bible. The Bible tells it like it is. It knows the pain of loss, of heartache, the frustrations of life. Our God is so much a a sympathizer with us that he calls his son our sympathetic high priest. The causes for discouragement are real. Paul knew many troubles, beatings, stonings, shipwreck, and the list can run circles around anyone you know, to be honest. And yet he writes this way because his faith had grown to understand how spiritual growth happens. And he uses this phrase here in verse 16. He talks about the outer self and the inner self. And it's my responsibility to help you think biblically about this. And you may, in a simple reading of it, get it wrong. Sometimes we think outer self. Oh, he's talking about my body and the inner self is my spirit. That uh, dichotomy comes from Greek metaphysics. That isn't exactly what Paul means. It, it may be one way we approach it because we've been so infected by this, this worldly thinking. And if you remember those Greeks, they used to, they used to think that you know, the, the body, the material world is somehow defective and it's only the inner life. Uh, and, and platonic love is better than any other kind because it's less bodily. They had this disparagement of the body and they wanted to separate body and soul. But it led to all sorts of troubles in the ancient world. Oh, I could go on and talk about how they would be free to live immoral lives in the body as long as they kept their spirit pure. You see where that thinking can become dangerous, my friends. Paul is not talking about body versus soul here. What is he talking about? Let's see. And we'll look at some scriptures to support it. When he speaks of, uh, of, of the outward versus the inward, He's bringing clarity about life now and the life to come. The outer inner self. He's speaking both times about our whole being. Body and soul now and here in Adam in this world versus the spiritual body and immortal soul of the world to come. The age to come. He's contrasting, as we read in other scriptures from Paul, the old self with the new self. So don't just draw a line and say, yeah, in the body it's rough, but my heart still feels good. No, God created us, Genesis 2-7. He fashioned Adam out of the dust of the ground, and he said, this is good. The Bible sees the body as good. It's God who created sex and appetites and hair and fingernail. He created the body, and it's good. But it's fallen. And it will need to be changed to inherit eternal life. Right? Amen? And in Jesus, that change will happen. The trumpet shall sound. And in a twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed if we're alive at the return of Christ. And it will include your body as well as your soul. So he's talking about this clay vessel that we are now, our weaknesses, body and soul, imperfect sanctification now, but then the perfections of the world to come. 
It's in Ephesians 4.22. He talks about the old self. And that backs up this, uh, this very teaching here. I forgot to bookmark it. Ephesians 4.22, he writes about the new life. And he said, you put off your old self in verse 22, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So he's talking about spiritual conditions and spiritual physical status. When he says put away your old self, that means in the body stop sinning. And in your heart and mind stop sinning. He says put on the new self, use your body for good. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. And grow more Christ-like in your spirit. So he's contrasting in Adam and in Christ. He uses the phrase in Colossians 3.10 of the new self. Colossians 3 is such a beautiful chapter. He's giving some practical ideas about uh, the new self. You've been raised with Christ. Verse 1, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. See, earthly. That's the outer man, body and soul. And he gets down to verse 10. He says, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on the new self. Become what you will be in heaven, in the world to come. That's the process. Sanctification. It affects your body and your soul. Okay, have I hammered that about five times? Because I don't want us to fall into this worldly thinking that leads many people to think that there's... Do I even say it out loud? Some think that there is such a thing as a carnal Christian... Oh yeah, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, but I'm going to live the way I want. You can't blame the Greeks if you turn to such bad theology as that. Okay? So Paul's saying, this life has hardness and the the man I am now, body and soul, is being changed. Right? Our outer self is wasting away. He brings clarity about the life now versus the life to come. And when he says being renewed, that's the expression of how we grow. We're being renewed. We're not remade every time, but we're being added onto and renovated might be a great translation. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in Christians. God is at work daily in those who believe. How is it that the inner man is renewed? Well, he's talking about the Christian, someone who's been born again, who walks by faith. I think Isaiah 40, those ending verses, well capture this walk of faith and this renewal of the Lord. I hope we all know this. And some have been reciting uh, Isaiah 40 in these days of trouble in our world. Verses 30 and 31 at the end of chapter 40. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exalted. Hear me now. But they who wait for the Lord, there's faith, there's the inner man holding fast. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And Paul says, that's me. 
I'm not losing heart. There's a consistency here. Those who wait on the Lord. As many of us know, recently with the 20th anniversary of 9-11, there are many heroes in many places on that day, even as many died at the hands of evil men. I cannot remind people enough about one of the heroes on Flight 93, Todd Beamer. A dad, a husband, he's going to be a father for a third time shortly. His wife Lisa would give birth after he died with all those on Flight 93 in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. But when the people on that flight found out that it was terrorists that had hijacked the plane, when people using telephones had heard that two planes had already brought down the Twin Towers, and this plane was likely headed back to Washington to kill hundreds and thousands of people. The people on that plane got together and talked. Todd Beamer, we know so much of what was happening because he happened to grab one of those early air phones and called the operator on the air phone and explained to her and the FBI what was going on. There were other heroes on that plane. I don't recall all their names. A big, famous athlete-type guy. A stewardess who uh, was fairly new, but she had been a cop. There were other heroes, but Todd Beamer, we, we see some insight to where his courage and strength for that day came as he said to the operator on the phone, will you pray with me? And he recited the Lord's Prayer as we did today. And without missing a beat, he started into the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. He went from praying to professing his faith. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my shepherd. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Todd Beamer could say that as he saw a terrorist in front of him. It's an extreme example, but it is a crystal clear example of how a Christian, even when hard-pressed in affliction and facing death, could find courage and strength to do something for the Lord, something to love his neighbor and to act. You see, faith understands how we persevere. It understands that even though there are difficulties for the outward life we live now, that God is fashioning in us the life to come. An application here to the first point, if we were to pause, might be this. Faith daily requires you to fight the fight of faith. Fight the fight of faith. You know that expression Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of what? Remember, faith always takes hold of an object, right? It's not just a feeling or a wish. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good profession in the presence of many witnesses. Continue to believe the gospel that was delivered to you. Why does he call it a fight? Why would the pastor say fight the good fight of faith? I don't want to stir up anyone to violence. Unless it's violence against sin and disbelief. In yourself first and foremost. Fight daily the fight of faith. 
Fight all that would discourage you, all the lies and all the things that your eyes see in the visible world that loom so large. All those scary things in Babylon or the Goliaths you face, which the Lord has faced for us. Fight daily by faith against all that would discourage you. Verse 17, Paul continues talking about why he does not lose heart. And here he says, faith discerns the difference the Lord makes. Verse 17 says, for, he's giving more reasons why he doesn't lose heart. This light momentary affliction. What is he talking about? He doesn't have the sniffles. He's telling us about his present circumstances by using the language of faith. Faith sees his big troubles. His, the death threats that come his way. And this is how he talks. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What is he doing? He's saying my faith can discern what the Lord's doing. My faith sees the purposes of God at work even in these difficulties. And the key word is there, the preparing. Faith discerns. Do you know what the word discern means? To distinguish or perceive or recognize something. I'll confess, I sometimes have trouble when I open the refrigerator. What kind of trouble? Well, I'll open one of those neat containers and look at it and wonder if something's still good. We try to eat our leftovers, but my sense of smell has not really come back after my sinus surgery, and I'll have to ask someone else to sniff it for me so I can discern, oh, it smells good, tastes good. Spiritually, we have to learn to discern and see the hand of God in things. And it's only the eye of faith that really does that well. John Calvin said, the comparison makes that light which previously seemed heavy and makes that brief and momentary which seemed of boundless duration when we have once raised our minds heavenward. A thousand years begins to look to us but like a moment. Faith, when we have raised our eyes to see what God is doing and what he's talked about doing, then we understand this isn't much. I've worked on different projects with guys who know how to fix things and I try to watch so I can learn and come to something else. Oh, look at this. That's all tangled up. And I go, oh no, we're, we're at a dead end. No, no. I know how to fix that. I've been there. I've got experience. I, or I know I have a manual that will show me how to do it. There's a discernment when you are familiar with who God is and how he works. Where others might more readily give way and lose heart. Faith discerns the temporary versus the eternal. Does it not? Faith discerns the trifling, the light things from the weighty, significant things. It discerns trouble versus glory. Here, when Paul uses these words in verse 16, the momentary, this temporary label, he is not saying that a Christian's trouble is only short duration. 
I've known people that have had chronic pain for all the years I've known them. 26 years in this church for one individual. Or chronic grief. Opposition. That doesn't just last for a few days or a few weeks. But years. The Bible verse is not telling us our troubles are short. Like a passing thunderstorm. Because they're not. The Bible is telling us that they're temporary in light of eternity. You see, we know that we shall be forever with the Lord. We, we can't even see the end of the timeline. How could we draw a timeline? I saw an evangelist in college in a men's dorm room try to describe life versus eternity. And we're in the basement of Horn Hall and University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and he says, see this hallway? And it went the length of the building, and you could see, I don't know, 50, 75, 100 yards way down. There's a long hall. It had tiles, so every, what, eight inches, there were little cracks. He says, our life is like this little crack. All our 80 years compared to eternity, and it keeps going. We, we don't grasp how temporary life is. Our troubles are momentary. Because faith doesn't just look at the, the 75, 85 years of life. That's what the world does. They're, they're, they're kind of fixated. The world says stuff like, only go around once, so i got to grab all the gusto I can. The Christian sees that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Where are you going to retire? My real retirement is not in this world. So that's what he's talking about here as he faith discerns the setting for the Lord's work. And then he has this light versus weighty. I use the word trifling. There's a Hebrew word play going on here. We'll get to that in a moment. He says it's a light affliction. How had he described it back in chapter 1? When he first started this letter, he said, uh, I nearly died. Do you remember chapter 1, verse 8? We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, meaning it was about to happen. And he says, light. Even trifling. That's light. We, we, we sometimes, I don't know if we're thinking in ounces and pounds or tonnage. We can do that. We're Westerners. We fixate on physical. But the language is pointing to its significance. Light meaning insignificant. Not light as a feather. But as inconsequential as a feather. Trifling. Versus weighty, versus significant, versus meaning a lot. Do you remember Jesus? He used this kind of expression in Matthew 11 when he said, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Mm -hmm. What does he say? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for, he says about this yoke. 
My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burden of following Christ isn't much. Belonging to Christ is everything. The yoke of Jesus, well, demanding, says one resource, is easy because it is from one who is gentle and lowly in heart. It's the yoke of Jesus. Now, I said there was a Hebrew wordplay behind this. This is written in Greek, but in Hebrew, the word for heavy and the word for glory, kavod, is the same. If something was rich and glorious, it was heavy, it was weighty, it was meaningful. And so what Paul, who probably thinks in Hebrew, is saying here, and he uses a different word in Greek, baros, uh, for huge or fullness, you might think tonnage. He's making that contrast. The difficulties of this life, according to verse 17, may be light momentary afflictions. But they're nothing compared to the tonnage of glory that awaits us. Ken Hughes says it'll be glory out of all proportion. Faith fights daily to see things that way. The troublesome phone call, the difficult email, the knock at the door, and someone in uniform in the middle of the night. When trouble comes, faith helps us to not be capsized. It gives us some ballast because we know the end for which God is working in us. The last part of verse 17, the trouble or affliction versus glory. Um, Paul is not saying here that affliction by itself merits glory, but that God allows affliction and through it God produces eternal glory. It's a tool. It doesn't merit. If you've suffered a lot, it doesn't mean that God owes you heaven. But it is something God uses in the life of his people. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's reversed the language of chapter 1 verse 8 when he was totally crushed beyond ability to deal with it. He says God has all these reversals in store for us. Trouble and affliction change to glory. That's what he's preparing for us. Richard Sibbs, one of the old Puritans, love to talk more about him, but we're pressing on. Uh, Richard Sibbs has a beautiful treatise or sermon on this text. He points out, as God prepares heaven for us, he prepares us for heaven. And he says, one way is by crosses and afflictions. That's how God prepares us. That's what the text says. These things are preparing for us. And who's the one who's preparing? God's hands are here and involved in our lives. So back to Sibs. He fits us for heaven even as the winter fits the ground for spring by killing weeds and mellowing the ground so that whatever we suffer here fits us for heaven. Really? Really? How does that work out? And you know the Puritans, they love to run down these questions and they give a long list. He's got like 10 ways this works out. Here's just a couple. How do afflictions work anything good in me? How how does this preparation work? Well, he says a few things. He says, by weaning our hearts from loving the things of earth 
you start to idolize something, God may just remove the idol to keep your heart from inordinately loving the things of the earth. How do afflictions work anything good? Well, afflictions exercise and try our graces, says Sibs. What does he mean? Afflictions make you pray, make you read your Bible, make you turn to the Lord and hold fast to him. He also says afflictions increase our desire for heaven. That's happening in my life these days. Look at a broken world. We even watch the headlines. I'm thinking, have we made progress in 20 years? Is the world safer, better for my children or grandchildren? I don't know, but I do know the world to come is the best place for my children and grandchildren and for me. So I long for that. Paul struggled to live as Christ, but to die as gain. That's the voice of faith. Right now we're talking about how faith discerns uh, the difference God makes here. An application here at the end of this second point. By faith, we need to trust all the preparations of the Lord. By faith, trust all the preparations of the Lord. Faith discerns the difference. We see what he's doing. And hopefully we can bring ourselves, like Paul, to say, yeah, this is hard, but it's preparing me. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, it was good that I was afflicted, that I might know you and your word better. That's the voice of faith discerning how the Lord works. So we need to trust the preparations of the Lord. Faith is not trusting in yourself, your ability to control and to face and to be ready for anything. Indeed, does not faith acknowledge your weakness? Does not faith say, the Lord is my shepherd and I'm just a sheep? That's what faith says. I don't know if I'm sufficient for this. Paul confesses in this very letter and God says, I am your sufficiency. I'm only a clay jar. I am putting this treasure in your hands nonetheless. Let me pause here to tell you about the greatest preparation God has done in all of history. The work of the cross. God has prepared a way for broken humanity to be reconciled to him and have an inheritance in heaven through the work of Jesus Christ, his holy, perfect son, who became a man, took on human flesh, set aside the the glories of divinity, as it were. Still God became man, perfect God, perfect man. The Lord Jesus Christ lived without sin, And then died in our place. Going to the cross. As a sacrifice for our sins. That we might be pardoned. Our record might be stamped paid. Jesus died on the cross. And then on the third day rose again. That by that victory over the grave. He might reveal God's power to save. To accept that sacrifice. His power to save you. Even if you should die following Christ. 
as Paul had just said in the previous passage, verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That was a confession of faith by Paul in the gospel. I believe it, so my life is completely in God's hands. Every day, I cannot die sooner than God wants me to. The gospel gives us hope. The gospel gives us help to deal with our temporary troubles, our afflictions, because it shows us the great vista of God's preparations. God has made a way. He's opened heaven. He deals with our sin and our baggage, and he will have that removed if we are in Christ. When we suffer, faith is certain that we will not be crushed because Jesus was crushed for our benefit, Isaiah 53. When we are persecuted, faith knows that God will not forsake us because Jesus was forsaken in our place and then promised us he will never forsake us. And when we face death, we need not fear nor lose heart for we know and trust that we will experience resurrection power even in ourselves as Jesus showed us. Well, our final heading this morning, uh, verse 18. Verse 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul gives one more reason that we're not losing heart. These are the situations. This is the way he views life. His faith, the heart of essence of his faith is being shared. And he says in verse 18, as we look... Not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This final ground for his faith, this final description of how his faith behaves, uh, just pokes into eternity, does it not? It tells us that faith looks to things unseen. Well, isn't that what faith does all the time? Yes, yes. Faith looks to things unseen. It's not the leap in the dark. It says knowing what we know, knowing what is promised, we look ahead to the fulfillment of those promises. Knowing who God is, knowing what Jesus did, what he promised, and he said, I go before you. I won't drink of the fruit of the cup until I drink it again with you in heaven. Knowing faith looks to the fulfillment of those things. That's still unseen. First thing we want to point out here is that the word look or the action look is the action of faith. Do you see that in verse 18? As we look. For the last two paragraphs of this chapter, you can actually see all these expressions of faith. I believed. I have a spirit of faith knowing this, knowing that. I look this way. He's describing how faith behaves. the topic of faith well how could one literally look to things unseen well you can't literally look it's a metaphor for faith how faith sees what the eyes of flesh cannot I love to ask what are you, what are you looking at what are, you, what are you reading in God's word what what are your goals in life? And, and we need to look beyond the here and now and beyond the temporal to the eternal. Are you looking to be ready for heaven? 
Are you looking for the return of Christ? Are you looking for God to keep all his promises to you? Where are you looking? He tells us two things in parallel here, and we'll move quickly to talk about them. Things that are seen are transient. Things that are unseen are eternal. Broad statements to to make his point. When he says things that are seen are transient, meaning if you see things and don't see a way of escape, don't lose heart, these things will pass. Remember, there's a stream of unseen, eternal realities. We recently had a Sunday school lesson from Daniel chapter 3. Do you remember that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing uh, a fiery furnace if they didn't bow down and worship the, the king. Right? They could see the fire being prepared. They saw what they were supposed to do. You've got to worship that idol. They could see the fire. They didn't see Jehovah. They couldn't see the temple. But they understood the difference between transient and eternal. And they had faith. And so their answer from Daniel chapter 3 is this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't have to think or debate. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But, verse 18, if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. By faith they could see the God to whom they would give account and continue to see a God who would keep them, a sovereign God, even if they died, who would reward their faith. Things unseen are eternal. I think Paul's trying to get these Corinthians and us to walk by faith. He's going to get to that in chapter 5. But he wants us to walk by faith. Uh, the best things in this world are not seen with your eyes. A lot of good things you can see with your eyes. But you can't see the face of God. You can't see the incarnate Jesus Christ. Some did while he was here, but he's risen. He said, I'll come back. You'll recognize me. He will bear the scars when we see him. But we don't see him now. We cannot see the full communion of saints. Some of these points come from Richard Sibbs. He said, we can't see the full communion of saints. What does he mean? Well, he reminds us that the church is an imperfect lot, believe it or not. We're not fully sanctified. Some in this room may not even be born again yet. We don't see what loving, peaceful, sin-being-absent fellowship looks like. It will be such that we won't... It'll be hard to take it in. But we can't see that fully now. We see it in part. Then we will see and know. Faith looks to things unseen. So the application here is walk by faith. We use our eyes and our data. We even have cars now that do the looking for dangers. Beep, 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 beep. Don't change lanes. Oh, I didn't see that car. We got a car sensor looking out for us. But he says walk by faith. Perceive realities and what's at stake. Remember what's significant and what's not so much. In closing, I just want to ask, where are you looking? 
Where is your heart? Are you struggling and losing heart because your faith is not looking in the right place? It's not remembering what God has revealed? Hebrews talks so much about the Lord Jesus and it talks so much about perseverance. Those two things go together so well. If you haven't read Hebrews in a while, read it today. And get to chapter 12. And that admonition from Hebrews 12 that we be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How how did he endure a cross? How did he deal with the shame and despise it? Because he was looking himself to his Father in heaven. We're exhorted to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk by faith after him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which makes you known to us and we thank you for the, especially for the New Testament that ties together so many things teaching us about faith, the strength of faith, the heart of faith, Father, it is so hard to not be troubled by what our eyes see on TV or around us or in the mirror. There's plenty of trouble to be seen. But give us, Father, a faith that can perceive how you are using these things, how you can and will prepare for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison with the troubles of this world. May we walk by faith. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.